0: Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this session of Bible teaching. It's around three months or so since we had the pleasure of meeting with you at Fernie Hill just before you had to vacate your premises. And I gather you've found very suitable, a very suitable temporary home at the Faith Mission just along the road, but you're unable to meet there today because of their annual convention. And so I have the privilege of... Uh, responding to a request to record a talk for you for this Sunday morning. And it's been recorded in Matlock in Derbyshire, where we now live. Before we come to God's word, let's just pause to pray. Mm -hmm. Our Father, we thank you afresh this morning for your word. Thank you that it is the living and true word, a word which speaks to our hearts and sets our souls ablaze. Help us to come our Father with open hearts and minds, ready to listen, ready to discern its truth, and ready to apply its meaning to our lives as we seek to serve you in the days that lie ahead for Jesus' sake. All right. Living as a Christian in today's world is not an easy thing to do. None of us are immune from struggle, difficulty, trial, or strain. Indeed, I think it would be fair to say that if we are true to our calling as Christians, we can expect more than our fair share of such experiences. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most distinguished preachers of the 20th century, put it like this. The New Testament never claims that Christian life is an easy life. Any teaching that maintains that the Christian should always be in a position where he has no struggle, no fight, no difficulty at all, and all he has to do is sit back passively, Is sheer heresy. There are terrible forces arrayed against us. We must not underestimate the power of the enemy. To do so is no part of New Testament teaching. Well, the question I want to bring to this well-known passage from Romans 8 this morning is, how do we find an anchor point? How do we shape a sense of perspective in the climate in which we're called to live? And the answer, as far as Romans is concerned, is in the gospel. The gospel which has touched and changed our lives. The gospel which represents God's good news for the confused and troubled world in which we live. Now, in the early chapters of the book, we are reminded of our true status as human beings through our ongoing rebellion against God, bringing the prospect of judgment and condemnation. These chapters also remind us, with immense clarity, of the core elements of the gospel. We offer forgiveness of being justified, placed in the right before God, having a new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to chapter 8, we come to something of a high point. In the overall argument of the book in which we are reminded, verses 1 to 17, that as Christians we enjoy a new intimate relationship with God in which we know him as Abba Father, proving the reality of a new power for living, the Spirit of God living within us. Then in verses 18 to 27, we have a new prospect for living tangible hope that one day we will will be realised through the redemption of our bodies and the liberation of the whole creation verse 21 from its current bondage and decay well now as we break into these well known verses at the end of the chapter we do so in the context of what the gospel has done for us as Christian believers and how that provides us with a profound security for living in all the uncertainties and difficulties that life as a Christian brings to us. So I want to consider this passage in Romans 8 from verse 28 to the end under the general heading of security for living and to suggest that there are three main headings that we can learn from in this context this morning. First of all, verses 28 to 30, God's purposes for us. Secondly, Verses 31 to 34, God's provision for us. And then finally from verses 35 to 39, God's powerful love for us. So first of all then, security for living in relation to God's purposes for us. Verses 28 to 30. It's always deeply reassuring to remind ourselves that as Christian believers, God has a very definite purpose for us, both individually and collectively. These verses suggest that there are three elements to that purpose. First of all, verse 28, God's oversight of our life circumstances. As we've hinted at, circumstances we are called to face in life are often perplexing, sometimes even destructive. Verse 28 reminds us that in God's greater purpose, there are no mistakes in the issues that are brought into our lives. They are there for a deeper purpose, and the purpose is affirmed for all those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In other words, for all Christian believers, without exception. What can we briefly say about this promise? Well, first of all, it's assured. We know that in all things, God works together for good. And how can we be certain what is happening in our lives is for greater good? Quite simply, it's God's word. God has spoken. And because he is an entirely trustworthy God, demonstrated throughout the history of the Bible, we can be certain his word is true. In addition, we have the testimony of individuals like Joseph, Jacob, David, in Old Testament times, or Paul in the New Testament, who faced overwhelmingly difficult and at times unjust circumstances. But in the fullness of time, they can discern God's gracious, sovereign overruling. Next, God's oversight of our life circumstances is comprehensive. In all things, God works together for good. There is no restriction to the circumstances that God will use for his fullest and greatest purposes in our lives. These may well include times of blessing and joy to help us appreciate God's goodness. But they will almost also certainly include times of struggle, uncertainty, loss, as well as what might be considered personal shortcomings or failures. These are events, as in the experience of Peter, God can graciously use for our ultimate blessing and good. And thirdly, God's oversight of our life circumstances is intentional. In all things, God will work. For our good. Now that does not necessarily imply our happiness, or material blessing. It's our spiritual good in the context of God's bigger purpose. To define our character and encourage our dependence on him. We can all look back on certain circumstances. Perhaps even our current circumstances. And express very frankly before God that we just don't understand why things are happening the way they are. But they are there for a purpose. They are there for our good. And in God's oversight, there will be no errors and no mistakes. E. I. Packer in his well-known book, Knowing God, put it like this. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, that could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? Well, in terms of God's purposes for us, we have his oversight of our life circumstances. And then in verse 29, we have his desire to conform us to the likeness of Christ. In the midst of what for us is often confusion and uncertainty in terms of what God is doing in our lives through circumstances, It can rightly be said God's greatest purpose is for all Christian people to make us more like Jesus. Something the Bible describes by the word sanctification. And as we noted earlier in chapter 8, it's something that's achieved through the work of the Holy Spirit. who comes to live within all true Christian believers. That goal of sanctification is what Jesus prayed. For his own followers in John 17, before he left this world, before he went to the cross. Something that Paul highlights in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, We are all being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Wonderful as it is, that God feels it's worth investing part of his own being within us to achieve that purpose. We also have a part to play. First Peter 1 says, as obedient children, strive to be holy people, just as God is holy. Philippians 2 verse 5, we are to continue to strive to make our attitudes those of Christ Jesus. Whereas morbid introspection can at times be helpful, unhelpful. Perhaps one of the issues we have to raise from this passage is to ask whether we regularly give time to opening our hearts before God and asking whether our current circumstances are making us more like Jesus or whether we are allowing them to make us more resentful and embittered. So God's purposes for us is oversight of our life circumstances, is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And then thirdly, verse 30, His commitment to bring us to future glory. In the midst of our current uncertainties and troubles, we do have to remember, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, they are light and momentary troubles that one day will give way to future glory on the day of Christ's return. God's working in our lives as Christians is presented in verse 30 in terms of what John Stott says are four undeniable affirmations. We are predestined, we are called, we are justified, we are glorified. Now this does raise the complex issue of predestination and election. Something that reminds us that as well as presenting us with free choice as to whether we accept Christ, God has also chosen us to be members of his family. Now with our limited understanding, we cannot hold these two truths together. But true they are, and one day, Our limited understanding will be enlightened. Now as we wait for that time, we can affirm that the main thought in this verse, verse 30, is that God's undeniable and enduring commitment to all who are Christians is very evident. Just as we have been chosen and justified, one day we shall be glorified. The verbs used in the verse, verse 30, are in the past tense something that Professor Bruce calls the prophetic past, where a predicted event is marked out as so certain a fulfilment that it's described as though it's already taken place. And that is certainly the case for our glorification. One day, as Christian believers, we shall be changed. We will have a new and glorious body, modeled on the resurrection body of Jesus. We will share a position of honour, dignity and fulfilment with Christ himself. We will move from this phase of preparation with all its uncertainties and shortcomings to the fulfilment of our true eternal home in a new heaven and new earth in which there will be no more sorrow no more crying no more death no more pain. The enduring glory of Emmanuel's land will be ours to appreciate and enjoy forever. Security for living is rooted in God's purposes for us. Purposes that oversee all our circumstances in life for blessing and good. Purposes that are rooted in conforming us slowly, gradually to the image of Jesus. Purposes that are focused on the fact that one day we will be brought to future glory. Well, as we move on down through the passage under this general heading of our security for living as Christians. Secondly, we come to God's provision for us, verses 31 to 34. Here, Paul's explanation of how we can be certain of true security in living progresses to some powerful anchor points in terms of what God has given to us to secure our salvation and what he's made available to us for our ongoing christian living paul states in verse 31 god is for us and in the following verses he outlines the evidence that god is for us the secure anchor points that we can hold on to as christian people what has god provided for us well verse 32 he has provided a substitutionary sacrifice The death of Jesus on the cross was a vital part of God's great plan of redemption. However, although it was planned and overseen, we must never minimise the immense cost involved for God as a loving father. The God who in history had spared nations and cities when they sought pardon, in the fullness of time, did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all. It was the greatest act of free will giving the universe has ever seen and will ever see. It was a death where God gave him up for us all. In other words, he died as our substitute. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The cost was immense. The one who was in every sense the center of his father's delight was given up as a free will offering for our sin. In the suffering punishment and death that should have been ours god has provided us with a perfect substitutionary sacrifice so that we can be absolutely certain our salvation is secure next god has provided us with what i've called verse 33 a judicial verdict who will bring any charge against those whom god has chosen says the author it is god who justifies Now that's a rhetorical question which reminds us that a legal transaction took place at the cross something that stands at the very heart of the teaching of the book of Romans God is a God of absolute justice and holiness such that human sin cannot be glossed over for the moral integrity of the universe to be upheld, the righteous anger of a holy God against human sin had to be unleashed but when we come to the cross we recognise that he had a remarkable judicial process unfolded, such that God delivered the due punishment, unleashed his righteous anger, not against those of us who deserved it, but against his own son, part of his own being. And in so doing was able to declare that all who trust in Christ are regarded as not guilty without any sense of compromising his own moral integrity. As the modern hymn puts it, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt with it, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. It was at the cross that divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. So God has provided for us a substitutionary sacrifice a judicial verdict and then thirdly verse 34 a sympathetic saviour as christians our appreciation of the significance of jesus death means that we cannot separate the actual death from what followed in terms of his resurrection and ministry of intercession for us in heaven
1: Now, whereas
0: the resurrection of jesus affirms for us god's satisfaction with what jesus achieved on the cross and assures us that the power of death has been resoundingly defeated. It's Jesus' present, ongoing ministry at God's right hand that we want to particularly note today. For today, in all our troubles and uncertainties, Jesus is praying for us. Even if our words at times are faltering and confused, he takes them and presents them to his Father. In the light of his time on earth, he understands our feelings, our weaknesses perfectly. In fact, better than we understand them ourselves. And his work as our great high priest can rightly be described as immensely comforting, powerfully enabling as part of God's ongoing provision for our security as Christians. On the 7th of November, December 1941, Winston Churchill, the great war leader, wrote in his war diary, Ah, so we won. Now, why did he do that? This was 1941. The Blitz was still at its height. Cities were being destroyed. The horrors of North Africa, of Stalingrad, of Normandy still had to come. Why did he write that? The seventh of November 1941 was the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. The following day, the United States entered the war on the side of the Allies. Churchill knew that despite all that still had to be fought for, the lives that still had to be sacrificed, the final outcome of the war was no longer in doubt. With the resources and the military might of the greatest nation on earth behind him, Churchill knew. He could not lose. And the same is true for us in Christian life. Although the uncertainty and difficulties we face will be formidable, God has provided all the resources we require. A substitutionary sacrifice, a judicial verdict, a sympathetic saviour, such that we too can say, with full and resolute conviction, If God is for us, who can be against us? Our security for living rooted in God's purposes for us. Enabled through God's perfect provision for us. And then thirdly, described and worked out by God's powerful love for us. Verses 35 to 39. The background to the This final section is the prospect of human fear creating uncertainty in our minds about the future. And whether in the most extreme of human circumstances, we can still be sure God will continue to love, protect and care for us. The number of potential circumstances which may raise these fears are listed for us from verse 35. Trouble, hardship, persecution. Terms which convey in an accurate way the pressures that many Christians face in living in a hostile world today. Famine, nakedness, lack of food, inadequate clothing, sad realities for many in our world today. Danger, the sword, the risk of death and the experience of it for Christ's sake. Again, tragic realities for many in our world today. In these circumstances, can we be entirely sure God still loves and cares for us? In verse 36, Paul then uses an illustration from the experience of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, quoting Psalm 44, reminding his readers that Israel in Old Testament times faced hardship and difficulty and potential death simply because of their loyalty to God, and no doubt they too, questioned at times whether God still loved them. Then as we move through from verse 38, we have a more general description of circumstances and influences that might be judged to potentially threaten, again, our experience of God's love and care. Death or life? Probably referring to the crisis of death and the general calamities of life. Angels or demons? Probably a a reference to all cosmic powers, whether good or bad. Present or future. A reference to all the uncertainties that the passage of time brings. Height or depth. Embrace of terms, including anything in the vast space of creation, supplemented by the phrase, verse 38, any other power. Now the detail here may be difficult to draw out but the writer's intention is clear. Whatever circumstance at whatever time, from whatever source, including death itself, cannot threaten the Christian believer's position of being the recipient of God's love and care. How can we be so sure? Because of the nature of God and the nature of his love. Human love as we all know, is limited. However strong the loving intention of a parent to a child, of a husband to a wife, of a friend to a friend, there will always be limitations in what human love can achieve simply because of our limited strength and resources. But the same prerequisites do not apply to God's love. God's love has at its heart a power that's unlimited. Resources that are beyond measure, and an intention to bless that cannot be thwarted. Here some of those who I'm speaking to this morning will be familiar with the name of Geoffrey Bull. Some may even remember a visit that he made to us for a weekend at Fernie Hill over 40 years ago now. Geoffrey Bull was a missionary in Tibet in the 1950s when the land was overrun and occupied by the Chinese Red Army. On account of his Christian faith and convictions, Geoffrey Bull was captured and imprisoned in dreadful circumstances. He was held in an underground cell with minimal ventilation, had no regular access to food or water, had no external stimulus, no meetings with any other individuals. And every pressure was put upon him to try and make him renounce his Christian faith. Things did not look good, but through the prayers of God's people, God miraculously intervened and Geoffrey Bull was released. Now, describing that dreadful ordeal in his book, When I Engaged Yield, he says this. I had been spiritually and psychologically bludgeoned until I was dazed and broken in mind and spirit but none had been able to pluck me from my shepherd and his father's hand. In the crisis, I had found my faith and love at times too weak to hold him fast. But the final triumph was not to be in my hold of him, but in his hold of me. His love would never let me go. That's why Paul can affirm with resolute confidence, verse 37, that if we are Christian people, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. It is a very strong expression. We do not just have to scrape through the trials and uncertainties life brings to us. We can meet them head on because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Well, that is something of a Summary of Paul's argument in the latter part of Romans 8. As I've said, it's a passage that articulates our security for living as Christian people. Whatever difficulties or uncertainties life may bring to us. As we've seen, it's a security that's based on God's purposes for us. The overseeing of all circumstances for our blessing and good. Conforming us to the image of his son. Moving towards our final home and glory. It's a security based on God's provision for us. The gracious substitutionary sacrifice of his son. The judicial verdict he has pronounced for us. The sympathetic saviour who prays for us at God's right hand today. And it's a security based on God's powerful love for us. A love that can never be threatened, even by the most extreme of human circumstances which today allows us to rejoice that in all things we are more than conquerors. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come with immense gratitude this morning to thank you afresh for all that you have done in our lives through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, you have brought us forgiveness justification, redemption, adoption into your family, and that we look to the glorious day when one day we will be changed and be with you in the new heaven and the new earth forever. Thank you that in the meantime, with all the uncertainties and trials and difficulties that life presents to us, as Christian people you have presented us and made available to us every necessary resource to enable us in our Christian walk and to bring honour and glory to you as we seek to serve you. Father, help us with renewed confidence today to lay hold on these vast resources and to seek to honour you and your Son as we utilise them for your glory and your service in the days that lie ahead. Bless us, our Father, this day we pray as we give you our thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.